All right, so talking about spiritual warfare, we're going to start with Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, kind of like the typical passage on that, and I need somebody to read it. So a volunteer to read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 would be great. Yes, Kara, you can read it. You got it, Amanda? Um, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's, devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, be still. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet put in the readiness. In addition to all this, the shield of faith, with which you can distinguish all the sons of the Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an, amb an ambassador in prison. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Awesome. So we're going to go through that kind of verse by verse, even part by part at times. So before we do that, though, I want to look at the context. Do you guys remember what leads up to this chapter in Ephesians? Go back to chapter 4. Okay. What do you guys think? What does chapter 4 start out with? Yeah, say it. Unity in the body, right? Unity in the body of Christ. 4 talks all about unity, working as a team, each serving in the area that we're strong. Uh, and together we're a team. We're not doing this alone. And then what does Ephesians 5 talk about? Yeah, but I mean a lot of it goes back to unity on a different level. Look at 5.1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So it's starting right, right with love. And then as we go through uh, the passage... Verse 21, submit to each other, right? Out of reverence for Christ. And then 5 concludes with just kind of a picture of how husbands and wives can live in unity. Then 6 starts with a picture of how children and parents can live in unity. And then, boom, we go into the armor of God, right? So the context, I think, that we don't want to miss is that the battle happens as a team. And if we're not functioning as a team, we lose the battle. That's what's going to happen. And if our team is not where it needs to be, we're going to lose the battle. And so there's a fellowship context to chapter 6, which is the battle. And Eliana. So we have to fight as a team. Then getting to Ephesians 6.10, it starts with finally be strong in the Lord and in, the mighty, and in his mighty power. So be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And I wanted to start by saying there are two options here. It's either victory or failure. There's no middle ground. In the spiritual battle, we're not going to do a 50% job. We will win or lose. General Patton, when he was facing the Nazis in Northern Africa in World War II, wrote to his wife and he said, and this is a quote from his journal or from his letter to his wife, 
He said, I will either leave this battlefield a hero or a corpse. <laughs> Isn't that great? I'll either leave this battlefield a hero or a corpse. And obviously, we're not out to be heroes. <laughs> and we want Christ to be the hero. We want him to get all the glory. But that's the perspective that we should have on the battle. Either I'm going to win this thing or I'm going to lose this thing. And then we as a team, either we're going to win this as a team or we're going to lose this as a team. Uh, united we stand, divided we fall, is what you've always heard, right? And it's very true. It is very true. So if you're not walking in the spirit, you're going to crash and burn. That's a guarantee. You're not going to leave this battlefield a hero in the power of might and in your own strength. It just won't happen. And we as a team all need to be walking in the spirit for victory to be a reality. And you can follow as we read, because this is going to be going kind of verse by verse. So if you're in your Bible right now, you can be following along. Ephesians 6.11 continues saying, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now there's a whole lot that we're going to look at in this verse. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Okay, did you get that? 1 Peter 5.8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. All right? So when 6.11 says that we should take a stand against the devil's schemes, the word stand there, actually we'll get to that in a minute, but it's talking about our enemy, the devil, right? And 1 Peter 5.8 continues telling us what he is doing. Uh, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now the word enemy, the in those scriptures is Greek antidokos, antidikos or something like that. <laughs> but the Greek word there literally means that he's your opponent, your adversary, your accuser in court. He's your enemy. Okay. Think about what Aaron talked about, sex slavery, right? That she went and worked with this summer. The same Satan that enjoys destroying little girls by having them raped 30 times a day is the enemy that's going to fight you on campus this year. He's not just kind of like, I hope Heather doesn't make it. He really wants you to be destroyed in every sense of the word. If he's willing to do that to a three-year-old girl, he is not going to spare anything to destroy you. Does that make sense? That's who our enemy is. And he literally is our enemy. And when it says here that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour... Remember in Job, in Job 1, 7, what was happening when God asked Satan, where'd you come from? And what did he say? He came from roaming the earth, looking for someone um, to destroy, right? He said that he was looking for somewhere, uh, someone that was unaware and weak and ready to devour them. You guys have seen all the analogies with lions. They don't go for the strong wildebeest. <laughs> they go for the weak one. Right? They go for somebody that is not ready to fend off the attack. And we'll all be there at times. But again, if we're not walking in the Spirit, if we're not walking in His we're going to be ready for attack, and we're going to be attacked hard. So Ephesians 6.11 says that we can take a stand against the devil's schemes. And that word scheme, I think, is important here. And it's methodia. Okay? And it literally is the word that we get method from in the Greek. And it means a strategy. So imagine that Satan is coming up with strategies for you personally. He's not just doing a blanket attack. He's not just saying, I'll throw this out at all of them and hopefully something bad happens. But he's thinking, through, and how can I attack that weakness? And not just one weakness. When she responds to that attack, 
what's she going to do and how can I attack her response? And then when she responds to that, how can I attack that response? Does that make sense? How many of you have ever noticed that you might feel like you're being attacked and you take your stand and you fend it off and you're, you're stoked. You're thinking, I just survived that and boom, a totally different attack hits you. Have you seen that? Right? That's not accidental. <laughs> he is strategizing his attack against you. And the second you think that you're strong, you're in for trouble. Okay? Uh, so he's coming up with a personal strategy for attack for you personally. Okay? He's coming up for a John attack. <laughs> he's going to attack you right where you aren't expecting it, and then he'll attack you again where you're not expecting it. Scripture tells us that he sets snares and traps for you, okay? So he's not just attacking, but he's laying out snares and traps that you'll walk into throughout your day. That's pretty crazy. So this week, next week, all semester long, there are going to be snares laid out by Satan that we are almost unaware going to walk in if we're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and trusting him, right? We are going to be ready to fall right into his trap. And he's going to be switching that up, like I said, constantly to make the snare and the trap even more deceitful. Let's look a little bit at who he is. We talked about how bad he is. Revelation 12, verses 9 through 10, say that, that Satan deceives the whole world. He is the deceiver. And that he accuses believers, right? He's the one that's accusing you. Going back to that Greek definition for enemy, it's somebody that brings an accusation in court. And scripture says that he's accusing you. Have you ever felt those thoughts going through your head? You're not worthy. You can't do this. You're not able. You're no good. He's accusing you. That's literally what's happening is Satan is accusing you. And that's part of who he is. Revelation 20 says again that he is the deceiver. John 10.10 says that he, that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Okay? So he's your accuser, deceiver, and he's stealing, killing, and destroying. And he doesn't just do this to non-Christians. He will try to kill your productivity for, for Christ this year on campus, your effectiveness for Christ, your ability to do the Great Commission. He wants to kill that. He wants to kill your discipleship. He wants to kill your evangelism. He wants to kill your growth. You're saved, but he wants to do as much as he can to destroy you and to rob you right now of the fruit of the Spirit, to rob you of the fruit of doing what God has called you to do. He is not going to be passive about it. So you need to have the right perspective about Satan. And this is going to make sense. The right perspective, I think we get in Jude verse 9, okay? And it puts it this way. It says, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So what's the picture you get here? How is Michael dealing with Satan. What do you think? He's handing him over to God. What else? Yeah. 
he had a real good perspective on Satan's power. Does that make sense? He wasn't flippant. He wasn't unruly. <laughs> he wasn't bumbling into this thinking, ah, I, I, I can bust Satan. I'm Michael, the archangel. I'm tough, you know. Psalm 8 says that God made us a little lower than the angels, right? If Michael, the archangel, the chief of all of the angels in heaven, has this level of respect for our enemy, we should too. In fact, I think we should realize that he is a lot stronger than any one of us. Okay? He is not a weakling. He is not stronger than Christ in you. <laughs> Thank God. Right? But in my natural flesh, I have nothing. I mean, I absolutely cannot fight that battle. But here's what's cool. And then you remember in Acts 19, these guys that don't even know Christ, they're these Jews that are trying to, you know, cast demons out of people and all this stuff, and they don't know Jesus at all. They're not Christians. And they get raged by these demons, right? These demons leave these demon-possessed people and say, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but we don't know you. You know, they weren't even Christians. And they tore them to pieces, really mangled them. So the idea here is in, in my own power, I don't have anything in this fight. I am a weakling in this fight, okay? But you have authority, and we're going to talk about what authority means. Luke 10, 19 through 20, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. How much of the power of the enemy? All the power of the enemy, okay? Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, right? As his children with our names written in his book of life, we can rejoice in that, not just in our authority, but we can be aware that we have authority given to us directly by Jesus Christ himself over all the power of the enemy. We don't have some authority, we have full authority. Now here's what authority means. In the Greek, this word authority literally meant power of choice, and this will be important, physical and mental power, the power of authority and influence, and the right or privilege, right? The power of rule or government, and this is going to be important, the power of him whose will and commands must be submitted to by others and be obeyed. Okay, now imagine a policeman out in this street. Is he more powerful than any car driving down that road? No. I mean, the law, uh, the laws of physics are firmly on the side of the car, <laughs> right? That cop is not powerful enough at all to stop a car. But he has authority, like it's talking about here, that those that are driving down the road must submit to him. He puts his hand up, you better stop, because he has authority given to him from somebody that has power over those cars, right? Somebody that can impound them right off that road. Somebody that is much more powerful than either the car or the policeman. So because he's been given that authority, he can exercise that authority over those cars, which are much stronger than he is. Now that's how you are in your relationship with Satan. That's a weird way to put it. But you have authority over him given by Jesus himself who has the power to give you authority, right? And you can exercise that authority over him. So exercise it. That's the main point. It's not passive. If a cop just walks out in the middle of a bus running down the road, he'll get creamed and killed. <laughs> okay? He needs to exercise his authority by putting his hand up and saying, stop. And we have to do the same thing. And we'll see exactly how to do that from Scripture, too. Scripture tells us not to give the devil a foothold. Okay? 
So as you exercise your authority, we cannot give him a foothold. And the word foothold there, we'll go through some Greek because I think in some of these words it's important. What does a foothold mean, right? I really want to know what that meant in the original Greek. And what it means is a place, a space, opportunity, power, or occasion for acting. So what would it be like to give Satan an occasion for acting? What do you think? The opportunity of the space, I'd say. Yeah. You're not exercising your authority and you're leaving the door cracked, right? Um, you're, you're not setting up your defenses in such a way that he can't get in. You're leaving a foothold, a door crack. You're leaving a way for him to penetrate your defenses. You might be strong like crazy in 99% of your defenses, but you're leaving a crack in that 1%. And he's going to take advantage of it because he's scheming against you again. He's not unaware of that crack or that foothold or that space or that opportunity for action. And so do not give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4.27, which tells us that, tells us how we can give Satan a foothold. Okay? If we look at the context of that passage, so the few verses before and after where it says that, it says that we need to know the truth in order to not give him a foothold. We need to put off the old self. Okay? We need to be made new in our thinking. How important is that to be made new in our thinking? Right? If I have old thought patterns in my head, I'm giving Satan a foothold. Right? Uh, and I, I got to get in the word to be made new in my thinking. Remember Romans 12, 1 through 2. I need to put on the new self. I need to walk in righteousness and holiness. I need to have no bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, or malice. Okay? It's a tall order. And then finally, I need to be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. And when it's talking about putting off bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, all that stuff, and speaking good, not evil, literally a big part of that passage, guys, is watching our speech. And it's talking about things like gossip, things like slander, things like any unwholesome talk. That is giving Satan a foothold when I'm not watching the words that are coming out of my mouth. Just imagine right now if I were to say, I'm pretty sure this is going to be a terrible year. I just gave Satan a foothold in all of your minds. You're thinking, oh my gosh, Nate thinks it's going to be a terrible year, right? Um, don't We can't do that with each other. We've got to watch our speech. Okay, pretty intense so far. <laughs> We're going to go through a lot of scripture, so bear, bear with me. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the attack comes from Satan. Remember, he is your enemy and he schemes against you. He sets snares and traps for you. He is constantly updating and switching up his attack. He deceives the whole world. He accuses believers and he steals, kills, and destroys. That's your enemy, okay? He's not the only place the attack comes from, though, right? Remember who's kind of in charge of the system of this world? It's Satan. And the world itself is going to war against you also. The world, it says in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay? For everything in the world, the cravings of, sin, of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. 
think of the system of this world, the pattern of this world that is so attractive to us as believers, to want to be liked, to want to be cool, to want to have what the world has. All those things are the pattern of this world, which literally are attack on us and all that God has for us. Romans 12, 1 through 2 tells us not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world because a big part of the attack comes from the world. But also, so you have Satan and the world that are attacking you. What else do you have attacking you on a daily basis? Yourself, right? Your flesh. Okay. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? My own heart is fighting the spiritual battle against me. Isn't that intense? You'd think that I would be strong enough to not fight against myself. But that's what our flesh is doing. What was that verse? Jeremiah 17, 9. Somebody from Connect last year, and I won't say who, but somebody posted on Facebook last week, and it's nobody here. Follow your heart. <laughs> that was their status update, you know? And all these comments were supportive of that statement. And I was almost gagging. You know, your heart will kill you. I mean, people following their heart rape three-year-old girls, okay? People following their heart divorce their wives, run off with other girls, leave their kids without an example of a father, right? People following their heart rob other people. My heart is deceitful and I can't trust it. I have got to be going to God daily. Otherwise, my flesh itself will fight this battle against me. Remember what Paul said in Romans seven eighteen? He said, nothing good lives in me. <laughs> There's nothing good inside here. And, uh, and in Philippians 3, 3, he continued and he said, we don't put any confidence in the flesh. So the second I start thinking, I can put confidence in my flesh. I'm pretty good. I don't sin like other people sin. You know, I'm pretty mature. I got it covered. The second those thoughts start being accepted in my thinking, I'm ready for failure. I'm ready to be destroyed in the attack. I'm giving Satan a foothold and he is going to come in charging, right? So the attack comes from Satan, the world, and my flesh, right? So when, when scripture tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's what it's talking about. It's against powers and principalities, rulers. It's against authorities. It's against the spiritual forces of evil, both in a satanic and demonic form, in a worldly form, and in the form of my own flesh that Satan uses. Ephesians 6.13 continues with part of the answer. And it says, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes... Check that out. What does it say? So if the day of evil comes, when, when the day of evil comes, <clears throat> it's coming. You may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand. Okay. The, the day of evil is coming and we need to put on the full armor of God. We're going to talk about what that means. But the bottom line is we can't be passive about our foe. Remember, remember Neville Chamberlain in, in uh, Britain during World War II. He was signing peace treaties with Hitler, thinking maybe we can appease him. Maybe he won't invade England if we appease him. And, and he was giving up large portions of other countries in exchange for peace. We can do that in our Christian walks. We can say, Satan, <laughs> maybe we would not address him like this, but we could, we could say, I'm not even going to go there because I'm afraid of the fight and I don't want to be in that battle. I'm going to be passive and just hope for the best. And we can't do that. The day of evil is coming, and we cannot be passive. We have to stand our ground, okay? And we're going to get into what it means to stand our ground in a minute and to put on the full armor. But I want you to understand this. You cannot overemphasize or underemphasize the spiritual battle. Does that make sense? 
You need to be aware that it's there without overemphasizing or underemphasizing. If you live every day thinking there's a demon out trying to get me behind that bush, behind that thing, behind that person, you're going to go crazy and you're going to be very foolish because you're not walking in the authority that Christ has given you. You're walking in fear. But I know Christians that do this. I've literally had a friend tell me, if you want to win your city for Christ, you have to go find all the bars and see what their names are. And the names on the bars are the names of demons. And then you have to cast that demon out of your town. Okay? The other thing you got to find is the names on all the high places. So here would be purgatory. They might have something there. <laughs> but anyway, you'd find all the high spots in your town and find those names because those are also names of demons. And then you have to cast them out. And then your city will be one for Christ. This is scriptural. This is script, scriptural uh, hogwash. This is not biblical at all. Okay. This is like an adult version of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. It's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. I've heard of Christians in our town going up here on these peaks and pounding wooden stakes into the ground with scripture verses written on them so that we would win our city for Christ. And I, I'm glad that they have a, a desire to see the city won, but that is, that is more like Dungeons and Dragons than scriptural spiritual warfare. Does that make sense? It's hokey. It's unbiblical. It's believing that a physical piece of wood on top of that peak has power. Right? Christians even do this in churches, and I think it's kind of weird. We do this in my church, and I don't want to criticize it too much, but we say things like when we're praying for somebody, everybody extend your hands and we will pray. And it's almost like it's like the Power Rangers, like this weird power is going to come out of my hand and John's going to be better because of it. I think we start to think so physically about the spiritual battle, and we think that physical little maneuvers actually impact a spiritual battle rather than exercising by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer, the authority that we have in Christ. I don't have to be on a peak to win the spiritual battle in Durango. As his son, I have that authority right now. Does that make sense? Uh, there are a lot of other examples that you could get into, things that are absolutely crazy. I've heard of Christians having imaginary, golden, invisible swords. This is not a joke. And they will take them out to do spiritual battle with demons. Right? This is so corny, and I think Satan is laughing. I think he's thinking, keep it up. <laughs> you're sure going to win that way, right? Real spiritual battle happens when you're on your knees, and you're praying for your neighbor, and when you're sharing your faith on this campus. And we'll get to all that stuff in a minute. But what I want to say is that's overemphasizing the spiritual battle in a way that we don't need to do. On the flip side, other Christians ignore it. They almost pretend like it's non-existent, and they underemphasize it. So our perspective needs to be right. We're not just a Christian version of, go of Ghostbusters, right? We are in a real battle for real souls, for real hearts, for real minds, and we've got to take our stand. So I want to encourage you guys not to get taken out of the battle this year, okay? Because every year we see students get taken out, and leadership students get taken out of the battle. Believing a little lie and then getting taken out of the battle. Russ talked about Nehemiah last night. And in Nehemiah 4, we see a really neat perspective on the battle. It says, From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. They are aware of the possible attack. They were not underemphasizing the battle. But at the same time, they weren't overemphasizing it. They were doing their work. But they were ready if that battle would come. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other hand. 
<laughs> okay, that's got to be us this year. I am sharing Christ, I'm praying, I'm leading my Bible study, I'm discipling with one hand, and in the other hand, I'm, I'm ready for the attack and for the spiritual battle. We have to have the right perspective. Okay, we need to be ready and proactive, not reactive. The second you get reactive in the battle, you're dead. Right? If we respond to attack after it happens, we're probably going to be on the weak side of that attack rather than being ready before it happens. Okay, So we need to be thinking offensively. And like I tell the guys sometimes, we need to fight to win, not just fight to survive. Right? A lot of times when people fight to survive, they lose. But if you fight to win, you always survive. Does that make sense? You get both if you fight to win. If your mentality is, man, if I can just make it through the semester and not become an atheist. <laughs> if that's your mentality, you're not headed for a good semester. But if you're going, I'm going to win this campus for Christ, you're not going to have to worry about becoming an atheist. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because you're going to be so in the middle of what God's doing that that second issue, the surviving issue, will be, uh, it'll go without saying, so to say. So fight to win, not just to survive. Okay, so how do we resist Satan, like it says in Ephesians 6.13? It says in the NIV to take your stand. In other translations, that's translated resist. And it's actually the same word that's found in James chapter 4 when it says submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's the same word that's used in 1 Peter 5.9. We read 1 Peter 5.8 about your enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion. Well, 9 continues saying resist him, standing firm in your faith. Does that make sense? So in all three of these passages, we get the same word for resist. Now, when I tell you that word, you probably think of it as a passive word, right? Like, I'm somebody's pushing you, and I'm going to, like, resist. That's not the word at all. The word resist in the Greek literally means to set oneself up against, to withstand, and to oppose. So when you go on campus and you say, this is who I am going to be, I am going to walk in the Spirit. I am going to share my faith. I am going to win this campus for Christ through his power, not my own. You are setting yourself up, and you're opposing Satan. You're not being passive and saying, when he attacks, I'll try to survive. You're saying, I'm attacking you. <laughs> Does that make sense? That's what resisting Satan is all about. You're not on the defensive. You're on the offensive. I am going to attack my enemy through Christ and through his power, doing what he's called me to. Now, first, first of all, James 4, 7 says to do this out of submission to God, right? So being fully submitted to him is important. <laughs> Again, that goes back to having Christ on the throne, being filled with his spirit. If you're trying to do this on your own, you'll be dead. And then in 1 Peter 5, it says to do this standing firm in our faith, right? So we have to do this by faith. Some of these themes will come up a lot as we talk. Now, okay, 1 Peter 5, 9, which we just read, talks about resisting Satan. We talked about verse 8 already, but I wanted to go back to this and talk about two words in verse 8 that we missed intentionally because I think that they really come in important right here. It says to be self-controlled and alert as you resist the devil. Okay, now, self-control in the Greek literally means to be calm, collected, and circumspect. So you're not freaked out. You're not scared to death of the attack, but you're calm, you're collected, and you're circumspect. You're watching everywhere. You're not just, imagine if I said, I'm going to be ready for the attack, but I'm only going to be ready as far as the leadership team goes. <laughs> I'm not even going to watch it with the rest of the students, right? 
I'm not being circumspect. I need to have my eyes open everywhere. That's what it means to be self-controlled. Calm, collected, looking everywhere. And then I need to be alert, which literally means to watch and to give strict attention to, to be cautious and to be active. Again, we're getting this active thing. So as being alert, we're not just with our eyes open, but we're being active in this fight. We're taking advantages of his footholds, right? We're taking advantages of his mistakes. And I love this about Satan, guys. My favorite thing about Satan is he always overplays his cards. Always. Always, always, always. You can bank on it. And you can win the battle when he does that if you're alert. He always overplays his cards. Okay? Somebody's struggling with faith, and then, you know, they're struggling with doubt and all this, and he hits them with demonic attack after demonic attack after demonic attack. Well, maybe it scared them a lot, but whatever doubt they had about the spiritual universe is gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Does that make sense? And I've seen it in many different ways. We've led people to Christ, and then that day, it's like attack, 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 car crash, financial issues, dorm issues, relationship issues. And then this person will come to me. This actually happened. I'm wondering if all this is an omen that I made the wrong decision this morning. <laughs> okay? And then he realized... No, this is real. The step I just took is legitimately real, and I'm getting opposed right now. <laughs> thinking Satan just overplayed his cards. He just convinced this new believer that he made the right decision by trying to oppose him. So you need to be alert and ready, right, to take action when he does attack and before he attacks to make the most of any of those opportunities. So we can't get complacent about his traps and attacks. Satan is always shifting tweak and maneuvering to destroy you and I have to be ready to resist him when he attacks but even before he attacks to do it oppositionally right to set myself up against him and to say I'm fighting you I'm not waiting for you to fight me I'm fighting you it kind of freaks us out doesn't it to like know that we're setting ourselves up why does that freak you out Confrontation is scary, especially with him, <laughs> right? We're setting like our. As a Christian, like we're always seen as like very pacifist, like it's okay, like stuff like that. But mm -hmm. it's like you almost, and it almost seems like you're being bad too, being on the like offensive, you know? Mm -hmm. like, instead of just letting it happen and defending, you know, it almost seems almost like too much to be on the offensive. Mm Scripture tells us to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. And that's really what it's getting here. Remember Paul when he's before the Sanhedrin? This is my favorite thing in the world. The Pharisees all believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees don't, okay? And here's Paul, and they're putting him on trial because he's preaching Christ. So what does he do? He says to the whole group, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. So what does that do? Pharisees and the Sadducees start having it out with each other because <laughs> they're like, he's right. No, he's wrong. They start fighting each other instead of him. He was being very shrewd. <laughs> he was being aware. He was being alert. He was being shrewd and he was fighting Satan <laughs> at the next level. He wasn't just passively going, I hope I get out of this. <laughs> he was being really smart. Okay. Okay. So Ephesians 6, 14, a, we're going to get into the battle, but I guess before we get there, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Okay? Did you get that? If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Be alert and self-controlled and don't fall. Eliana, look.
Okay, we found a ladybug. That's a big deal. Okay, Ephesians 6, 14a. Stan are we going too fast, or is this good? You guys are... We'll get another one. We'll get another one. Oh, wait, are you guys retaining it, getting it? Yeah. Okay, is it good? Are you sticking with me? Okay. We're going to hit it hard and fast, because it's there's a lot. Ephesians 6, 14, first part of the verse uh, A, says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, all these are significant. Have you ever thought, and I've actually heard Christian leaders say this, that you need to every day read through this list and say, I put the belt of truth on. I put the breastplate of righteousness on. <laughs> put the, take up the shield of faith. That's not what it's talking about here. This isn't an incantation that protects you from spiritual attack, right? This is a, pro, a procedure that you can walk in daily, right? Now, here's where it starts. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The reason that it all starts with the belt of truth is that to the Roman soldier, everything centered around the belt, everything. The other pieces of the armor were latched into the belt. If you didn't have them on, your armor fell apart, right? Your weaponry was fixed on the belt. Your sword was attached to your belt. Your dagger was attached to your belt. If you had no belt, you could not have these things ready for battle when you needed them. The belt held everything together. So it was extremely important. So when you think about your life, what has to hold everything together in your life? Truth. Isn't that cool how he puts that there? He didn't say, make hospitality, the, the belt that you put around your waist. But he's going back to the basics. If we don't have it down, Pat, we're dead. If the basics aren't there, if your scriptural knowledge is insufficient, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, but if those things are insufficient, we're in serious trouble. So the belt of truth needs to be buckled around your waist. Okay, one minute, sweet girl. Eliana, Eliana. Okay, another thing too is when it says your waist, other translations translate that what? Loins. Okay, what are the loins? This is literally what it meant in the Greek, too. No. They're your reproductive organs, okay? <laughs> it's and The loins actually referred to the male reproductive organs because women weren't out in battle in the armor. But they're it literally, not to be crass, but the Greeks used that word to describe the place that held the semen, basically. That was their dis description. Why is it important, okay, when you think of spiritual multiplication for truth to be the core? What happens if you start telling the people you're discipling whatever opinion you happen to have that day in your mind? Well, it's not truth. And multiplication is dead, right? All of a sudden we start getting all sorts of tangents and whatever and who cares and who knows and my opinion versus your opinion. We're not basing it on truth. So there are two things that we need to see about the belt of truth. One... Everything else in my life personally has to be centered on the truth of God's word, okay? And two, my multiplication to the next generation of disciples has to be founded on truth, right? And if it's not based in truth, I'm in serious trouble, right? That's why you should get a red flag when people say, I'm going to do discipleship with this person using a book. Well, it could be okay, because that book might be predominantly based in scripture, right? 
and they could be using scripture to supplement that. But the, the main thing you need to remember is scripture has to be everything and scripture interpreted correctly, right? This is why Paul told Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he said, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's going back to both parts of the battle. You're going to be protected in battle and your hearers, the people you're leading, are going to be protected in battle. And that multiplication is going to be protected if you are persevering and watching closely your life and doctrine. Does that make sense? So we need to be passionate about God's truth. So I stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around my waist practically by walking in the truth, reading, studying, meditating on, memorizing, and applying God's word. I have to be in God's word. The second I'm not in God's word, I'm susceptible to Satan's attacks. Does that make sense? Okay, number two, Ephesians six fourteen, part B, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Uh-huh. Eliana? Here, go get some water with Mama. No, She's just sitting here. Here, go over with Mama in your orca whale. Okay. Um, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. So what does the breastplate protect? Your heart. What else? Your lungs. What else? Yeah, vital organs. Okay. It's What if you didn't have protection of your guts and your vital organs? You're, you're dead, right? So the breastplate protected your vitals in combat. And what do you think it's talking about when it says breastplate of righteousness? What's that? The, okay, the word righteous, you could always think of it as this. This is a simple definition of it, but it is mem- you can memorize it or remember it real easily. It's right choicesness. Okay, I've heard people put it that way. It's what your life would be like if you'd never made a wrong choice. That's pretty good, huh? <laughs> never a wrong turn, never a sin, never a right, a wrong choice. Now, because of Christ, you are righteous. He has imputed that to you because of what he did at the cross and because you accepted that gift, right? But then there's a second part to righteousness. All these things that we're going to talk about, they can't be divided from each other. Righteousness is both the righteousness imputed to you by faith through Christ alone, but it is also walking in righteousness today. What if you say, Jack, let's just say you say, I'm righteous because Christ made me righteous. So yippee, I'm going to go look at as much porn as I can. (laughs) Okay. Would the breastplate of righteousness be firmly over your vital organs? (laughs) You're going to be ready to die, right? Um, You're going to be ready to die. Now, you're righteous before Christ and you're saved and you're going to be in heaven. But if I'm choosing to walk in sin or in unrighteousness, I am not being protected in battle. In fact, I'm setting myself up for failure. Check this out. We need to walk in his righteousness instead of guilt and shame. Philippians 3, 7 through 9 talks about walking in his righteousness. And it says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now get this not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Did you get that? So I need to walk in his righteousness by faith. But check this out. There's the second part of the breastplate of righteousness, which is practice righteousness and avoid Satan's deception and attacks and the consequences of sin. 
right? 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness, um, the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So again, it's saying if I'm not practicing righteous like he is righteous, if I'm not practicing righteousness, I'll be set up to be deceived. Isn't that interesting? And that's what always happens. Remember what Hebrews tells us in chapter 3, that we become hardened by sin. If I'm not walking in practical righteousness, I'll become deceived and hardened by sin. I start to think it's no big deal. It's not that important. And I'm setting myself up for a big fall, right? Isaiah 54, 17 continues. And this is so good. If there's a verse you could take away from today, it says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. <laughs> this is cool. Heather, no weapon formed against you this year will prosper. Satan will not prosper against you. And every tongue which rises against you, you remember your deceiver, your accuser, that tongue that rises against you, in judgment, you shall condemn. So Satan's going to rise up against you to accuse you, and you're going to accuse him with the authority that you have in Christ, based in truth. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. See this? If I'm walking in his righteousness, if I'm practicing righteousness like he is righteous, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Will prosper. No accusation against me will be fulfilled. No deception against me will be received, right? Ephesians 6.15. So I practically put on the breastplate of righteousness by walking in his righteousness and then also by practicing righteousness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's walking with the breastplate of righteousness covering my vitals. Ephesians 6.15. Oh. I'm going to have to do this trying to record this so that we can put this online for future students because I think this is going to be important, you know? Uh, one minute. This is about to die. Okay, we'll get it right there. All right. Ephesians 6.15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Okay. This is going to be good. A soldier's shoes were fundamental for victory, even just for survival. <laughs> Because if you didn't have shoes, you could not run over rocky, thorny, difficult terrain without being hindered. Have you ever tried to run on rocks or even walk on rocks? It's hard. It's painful. It's agonizing. And so shoes were extremely important. And what the Roman soldier would do is they would put nails through the soles of their shoes to give them traction in battle. Kind of like we have studs and all that, like the bottom of Jack's sandals over here, the Vibram soles. Okay, they had their version of that to give them traction maneuverability, and the capacity to move with speed in battle. It was vital to victory. If you did not have your shoes on, you would lose. You'd be dead quickly. Okay, now what is what are our spiritual shoes or the readiness produced by having those shoes? See, if your shoes are on, you're always ready. You know, even if you're taking a nap and your shoes are on and the attack comes, you can bolt or you can stand up and fight. You know, you're ready. So what does it say here? What is it? The gospel of peace, right? The gospel in the Greek literally means the good news. What is the good news of peace? Jesus, yeah. Remember Romans 5.1 talks about how we have peace with God. And it's not because of us. That's the good news. It's not our actions, but it's his that gave me this peace. Is the gospel just accepting Christ or is it just sharing Christ? Right. It's both, right? You can't separate, that'd be like saying, is Joseph, 
cool or smart, <laughs> right? You can't, you can't separate the two, right? Um, you can't say the gospel, the good news is just salvation or just speaking it. It's both, isn't it? It's both. And if I'm not doing both, just like if I'm not walking in his righteousness and practicing righteousness, if I'm not doing both, I'm not going to be ready for battle. So my feet have to be fitted with the readiness that comes from living the gospel, experiencing the gospel. That starts at salvation. That starts the day that you put your trust in Christ, right, Joseph? But today it continues just as much because today you have to remember he's your savior. Today you have to combat all the accusations of Satan with the realization of who you are in Christ, his child, made perfect in his eyes because of what Christ did at the cross. That's what we have to see today. So we have to live it today. We have to experience it initially, live it constantly, but then we have to share it as a lifestyle. And if I'm not sharing it, I am not ready for battle. And that makes sense, right? If I'm not sharing the good news, I'm really not fighting, <laughs> right? I'm just being passive because that's pretty much the only place where we gain new ground is in evangelism and in sharing, right? That's that's the, the front line of the battle, so to say. Now, when it talks about the shoes and the gospel, remember Romans 10, 14 through 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So again, we're, see we're seeing that bringing the good news goes back to this feet fitted with the preparation that comes from the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news, right? As you share your faith, your, your feet, so to say, are ready for battle, right? You're ready to take new ground when you're sharing your faith. And if you're not practically putting on your spiritual by always being ready, living, and sharing the gospel, then you're not going to win in battle. So we need both. Are all these parts of the armor clicking together pretty good? Isn't this interesting to see that as a lifestyle, all of this protects me in battle? If even one of these things is missing, though, I'm susceptible to attack. And none of us are going to be per perfect. There will be times when one or more of these will be missing. Right? And I need to trust God, but it's good to know this stuff. All right. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. We're going to go fast. Ephesians 6.16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 1 Peter 1, five. Aaron read it this morning, says that we are shielded by God's power through faith. So our faith is our shield. When the flaming arrow hits you, your faith is your shield. And you can stand up and say, by faith, no. By faith, I'm knocking that arrow down. And that's what the shields do. There are a lot of explanations of what the shield was. This was the tall long Roman shield. They had smaller ones as well, but this was the big one. And it had multiple layers of wood and and um, leather, and then it was coated with metal. So a flaming arrow, when it hit it, would would be stopped at the metal, the, the flaming part. It, the fire would be done. Because they would rain fiery arrows down on the Roman soldiers that were advancing. Amanda? Oh, okay, if it comes back to you, bring it up, right? Okay, so the shield of faith, guys, is extremely important. Walking by faith and not by sight. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. The other thing about this shield is it was big enough where the soldiers that were advancing on a city could link up with each other and overlap their shields and create almost an impenetrable barrier from those flaming arrows. 
So the archers could be raining arrows down like crazy, but if we're advancing together, we're going to make it. Again, we see the need for unity as we exercise our shields of faith together, really fending off any attack together, right? This is something that we have to do together. United will stand, divided will fall, right? So we can be protected from those flaming arrows when we're linked up and overlapped with other shields. So what are the fiery darts? Right, if we're holding up the shield, they're never going to make it into my mind, emotions, feelings, all those things where they're designed to hit, right, if that shield is up. What are they? You guys, they could look like good opportunities. We talked about this in the hot tub some yesterday uh, with some of you guys. Satan tempted Jesus with good things, food and praise, and sometimes the good is the enemy of the best. You've probably heard that. You might be told this semester something that's very flattering, like, We've had this before, and I'm not saying that this is always an attack. It could be God's will, but we've had pastors come to leadership students that have Bible studies, and they're discipling students and sharing their faith, and they'll say, we want you to be a leader in our church. <clears throat> and, a, and a student will say, oh my gosh, I feel flattered. I can't believe this pastor wants me to be a leader. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a clue. 2% of Christians share their faith. Even fewer do discipleship. Most pastors trained in seminary have done very little of either. And when they see a college student that knows how to do both, has done both, and is good at both, you look to them like a million dollars, okay? Now, God might totally call you to serve in some church. I'm not. That's something that is between you and God. But what I am saying is sometimes there will be good opportunities that you have to turn down. And we were talking about this recently. My first year on staff, I got asked to teach pastoral leadership training classes. I was thinking, this is the greatest opportunity. This is so exciting. I had to say no to that. It was a distraction from the best. Okay? Does that make sense? So sometimes you'll be given opportunities that sound very good, but they could be better than the best. How do you know if something is not the best? Russ touched on it last night. You need to know your purpose. Right? You need to know your purpose so that the flaming arrow of opportunity doesn't get into your soul. Right? And lead you astray. People could be flaming arrows, right? Again, our battle's not against people or flesh and blood. But believers around you could gossip about you, slander about you. They could they could do all sorts of trouble directed your direction. Those, those issues could be flaming arrows. Unbelievers could as well, right? Respond to those people attacks with love, right? Respond to those with love. Circumstances, school, money, job, distractions... How many of you had money issues before the semester started? How many of you had school issues, housing issues? How many of you still have housing issues? Those are all part of the fiery arrows. They're designed to get you in this mental state of anxiety, right? This whole thing in our neighborhood right now has got me there, and I'm really trusting God by faith. I'm putting up that shield and saying, whatever happens, God, I'm trusting you. This can't be an issue of anxiety. Temptations could be fiery darts, or they are, not could be, they are fiery darts, right? I respond to temptations realizing 1 Corinthians 10 says that there's always a way out, and I'm not being tempted beyond what I can handle, and simply by running to Jesus. That is our, our ultimate need. In James 1, 14 through 15, it says that each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he's dragged away and enticed. Remember that? And it goes on with the rest of the cycle there. 
So if you want to end the temptation, and a lot of you have heard me say this, hit it at the level of desire. Don't wait till you're tempted and try and fend it off, but start letting God change your desires today so that the temptation has nothing to work with. And we do that by how? Psalm 37, 4, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. See, as, as he's my passion, doesn't he do that with you? Doesn't he change your desires? All of a sudden you'd want things you didn't used to want and you don't want things you did used to want. And temptation has such little to work with in that situation. Mental attacks, guys, depression, anxiety, fear, doubt, insecurities. Every one of you has insecurities. Every one of you will have times where you might struggle with depression. And then you know what Satan's going to do? He's going to say real Christians don't struggle with depression. Something's wrong. It's not working for you. Bible doesn't say that. <laughs> right? Look at, look at Jeremiah. Look at people all through scripture that dealt with hardcore depression. And what do you have to do with depression? The same you do with anything else. You run to your Savior. You're dependent on Him. He's everything. Right? Uh, anxiety, fear, all of that. I have to extinguish it by faith. Whenever it hits, running back to Him by faith. You guys, you might have demonic experiences. Almost every Christian leader I know has had demonic experiences. I've seen demons. Stephanie has seen demons. Aaron has seen demons. Russ has seen very demonic stuff right in front of his face. Um, I know you have. We've talked about it before. Any hands? You don't have to share if you don't want to. But any of you guys seen anything like that? A lot of us have. And I have on multiple occasions over a span of over a decade, over two decades, Okay, you don't need to be scared about that. It could happen. You could have demonic manifestations. You, just like I said before, don't overemphasize or underemphasize it. You have authority over that. I want to go through what scripture says to do in that situation. Respond to these either verbally or by exercising your faith and your authority as God's child any way you can. Two out of the three major series of demonic experiences I had, and I say two out of three of the series because one lasted months where I saw demons pretty much daily. Um, I would be speechless. I could not speak. Where, have you been like that? Yeah. Where you're like so paralyzed. Do you want to say in the name of Jesus leave, but n you cannot get words out? I mean, you feel like you would, I mean, you'd scream if you could, nothing will come out. You don't have to verbalize something to exercise your authority. And this, it's, I think it's important for you to know. Whenever I've been in those situations, I've just closed my eyes and magnified Christ in my mind and thanked him that as his child, I have authority. And it has gone. And also, I've heard of situations where it doesn't just vanish. Again, just like if you're dealing with depression or some other attack, you persevere, relying on God, depending on him. Remember what? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, he was given a messenger from Satan, right, to buffet him, a thorn in his flesh, probably blindness or something close to it, it says in Galatians. But obviously there was a very demonic aspect, and God wouldn't take it away. God allowed it for his character development. We'll touch on that in a minute. Here's what you need to do, though. From Scripture, either verbally or non-verbally, you have to exercise your authority by faith. You have to recognize, I'm his child. There's no power over me. Scripture says that you exercise your authority over demonic issues as a believer, first and foremost, but I think you're all there, rebuking them in Jesus' name. Jesus gives you authority. Um, I can come... Paul literally, in, um, in Acts 16, commands these demons. He's like, I command you to come out of her, to this demon-possessed woman. 
be respectful of who he is. Remember, Michael the Archangel didn't even say, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you, right? But at the same time, I don't think the words are the most important thing. There are a lot of emphasis. In Scripture, we see the word go. We see come out. We see leave. We see be quiet. We see I rebuke you. We see I command you. We see all these things. So it's not so much the words, but it's verbally and by faith exercising your authority, saying, you have no control over me, Satan. I am God's son, and that's all there is to it. I'm God's daughter, and that's all there is to it. You get that? That's kind of the scriptural perspective. It can it can be verbally <laughs> saying the Lord rebuke you, saying you have no authority over me, but it can also be nonverbal, where you simply in your mind establish Christ's lordship, reminding yourself and Satan of who he is. The fallout is always going to be in your emotions and in your mind, guys. And you have a promise in Scripture, Isaiah twenty six three says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. As you're trusting in him, he will keep you in your mind in perfect peace, right? In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, where it talks about the spiritual battle. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Again, that mental, emotional battle has to be taken captive constantly, constantly. You might have to tell yourself 38 times a day that he is your joy. But keep telling yourself that he is your joy until yourself starts to follow what's true. Does that make sense? It's a battle for your mind. And the second you start to give up ground in your mind, you're on the track for failure. So we take up the shield of faith by walking by faith and not by sight. I can't walk by sight. I have to trust him regardless of circumstances, regardless of what's going through my mind, regardless of opportunities, distractions, people, gossip, slander. I have to walk by faith trusting him. Okay, Ephesians 6.17, the helmet of salvation. Okay, again, is this just salvation when you got saved? Or is it your salvation today from whatever you're facing today? What is it? It, this is the holistic approach from God's perspective. It started at salvation and it continues today. The helmet of salvation is referred to in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 as the hope of salvation, right? right? So I have hope in what he has done and it will do in the future. Right now, when I think of anything that I'm facing where there is a possibility for me to have trouble, my hope is that he will save me from that and that he will glorify himself and that he will work his character into me no matter what happens. So that hope of salvation protects me today. It's protecting my mind. Again, going back to the mental-emotional battle. It's protecting what's so important in the fight. Greek helmets had images of hope inscribed on them and painted on them. Isn't that interesting to see that? How when Paul was saying this, he wasn't just like throwing out like a weird metaphor, but he was talking about something that they would recognize. And what they were were images of winning in battle. So when these soldiers went into the battle, they had painted on their helmet. The last thing they saw as they put that last piece of armor on was an image of hope, an image of them winning in battle. And we have more than just an image. We have a promise of victory that we can enter every battle with, right? So our hope, our salvation, the battle is already won. That hope keeps our perspective strong in battle. Guys, we have to have that eternal perspective that Aaron talked about today. We put on the helmet of salvation by first being saved in an eternal sense. 
And then second, by keeping our hope focused on him and his salvation and his solution in every circumstance, every single day. Walking by faith in hope and what he's done. Okay, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians six seventeen part B. You have to win the battle by going on the offensive. We talked about that when we talked about the word resist. But until you go on the offensive, you're not going to win the battle. Remember Hebrews 4.12 talks about the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing the division of joints and marrow uh, and soul and spirit. Do you remember that? Judging the thoughts and intents of the heart or the soul. We have to go on the offensive with the word of God. Now remember this. God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, scripture says, teaches us. Scripture says he reminds us of Christ's words. Scripture says he gives us Christ's mind and thinking, and he guides us into all truth. That's why the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, because the word of God is truth, protects me, but the word of God in his hands is active for battle. Does that make sense? Do you remember Jesus combating Satan in, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4? What does he use? Scripture. That's what we have to use if we're going to win the fight. So we don't have to use it in the protection way, which was the belt of truth, but now we have to use it in the confrontational way, using Scripture according to the Holy Spirit's direction. It's the sword of the Spirit, right? Now, you guys all know, and we've talked about it before, how in situations God will bring Scripture to mind, and you use that in battle. That's what this is talking about. I'm winning the battle with Scripture, right? I'm winning it based on God's Word. You and I all have to be, we have to have scripture there for the Holy Spirit to have something to work with. Does that make sense? So don't leave him empty-handed. Again, cultivate your knowledge of the word so that he has something to remind you of, <laughs> okay? <laughs> cultivate it so he has something to lead you in. Cultivate it so that he can guide you in battle. Oh, gosh, we have so much. Throne checks are necessary. I have to let the Holy Spirit guide me and to read and direct me through his power, based on God's word and truth, okay? So use the, the sword of the Spirit by allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you and living moment by moment by applying the truth of his word wherever you happen to be. In your discipleship appointments, applying God's word. In evangelism, sharing scripture and sharing God's word, knowing that it will not return void. That's what it tells you in Isaiah 55, 11. God's word is gonna accomplish all that he intends for it to accomplish. Isn't that good? Right? That's the sword of the Spirit. Okay, Ephesians 6, 6, 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Okay? Now, this is, okay, not to step on toes. We are non-denominational ministry, so what you believe about the gifts of the Spirit, tongues, prophecy, etc., we trust that between you and God and what you're getting from the Word, you're on track, you know? We're not going to push either side of that. What I will say about this passage, though, is I grew up thinking for 18 years that that was talking about speaking in tongues until it hit me that in this instance, again, I'm not talking about all instances, but in this instances, in this instance, it says praying in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, right, for all the saints. This is this is intentional prayer for specific issues, right? So this is very much involved in your mind, but with the Holy Spirit's direction. Okay, so what does that mean, Josh? That means when I'm running on my treadmill and the thought pops into my mind, Josh is in Chile with all of his old BC friends, okay? 
Do I just go, hope he survives, keep running? No, I trust that the Holy Spirit is directing me in prayer to pray for you, okay? And so I start praying for you right now. We need to cultivate that sensitivity to his spirit to be ready to pray on all occasions, it says, with all kinds of prayers for whatever he might direct you to be praying for. Does that make sense? That's that's big, and that's part of how we win the spiritual battle. Now get this, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, going back to prayer in all circumstances, in everything, right? With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <laughs> going back to the mental, emotional battle, if I'm praying, my heart and my mind are going to be guarded. Do you see how important it is to be praying as the Holy Spirit directs? This is key to the battle. Okay, now we really are almost there. We're finishing Ephesians 6 right now, at least our passage. 19 through 20. Pray also for me. So he continues talking about prayer and going into the next topic. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So he concludes this whole passage on spiritual battle with the perspective of evangelism and fearless evangelism. Pray that I would proclaim the gospel fearlessly as I should. Isn't that interesting? That is the conclusion to his whole passage on spiritual warfare. If I'm not doing that, I am not going to be gaining ground. I'm going to be lost in the battle. Guys, sharing our faith, as scary as it is, as we share it fearlessly, depending on him, with all of our armor in place, we win the battle. We go on the offensive. We resist the devil. We submit to God. We obey him even though we're afraid. And then we experience victory offensively, gaining ground for him. <sighs> okay, a few closing thoughts. Is it good, though? Is it worth going a little long? I hope I hope it is, because um, I really hope this is something that you'll never, ever, ever forget. Winning the battle has a lot more to do with taking ground for God than it does with not having trials and circumstances. Scripture never tells you that if you put on the full armor of God, you won't have any trials or bad circumstances. I wish it did. What's that? It does. Yeah. John 16. Remember what Jesus said? 33. It's right here. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Again, you're going to have peace in the battle, but in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. <laughs> I'm bigger. You're going to have trouble, guys. Our purpose in the battle is Christ-likeness. It's not no bad circumstances. It's Christ-likeness and furthering his kingdom on this earth. New believers, new disciples, multiplying to the ends of the earth until he returns. That's the purpose of spiritual battle. And there might be times where it sucks in the, in the transition. You might feel tired. You might feel mad. You might hate everybody else here on this team, okay? You might be full of anxiety, full of fear, grades going bad, and no money in the bank. But you could have all your armor on and still be in those circumstances, and you could still be winning the fight. And you're really winning because you're not letting those circumstances drag you down. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, we talked about it. He said, I delight in weaknesses because when I'm weak, he is strong, right? And he talked about that specifically when there was demonic attack involved. First Peter 4.19 says, so that, check this out. So then, those who suffer according to God's will. If you have a biblical worldview, 
you'll realize that there will be times that you will suffer according to God's will. There are going to be times where you suffer because you sinned, <laughs> right? And that's what scripture calls discipline in Hebrews 12. And he says God disciplines the child that he loves. And he's treating you as sons when he disciplines you. But guys, sometimes we're going to suffer even according to his will. And here's the thing. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Don't you want to be mature and complete, not lacking anything? That happens in the spiritual battle. When I stand my ground, when I resist the devil, when I take the battle to him, fighting offensively, and then walking by faith in spite of hard circumstances, allowing him to develop my character. This is what happened to Daniel. Remember, in Daniel chapter 10, he's praying for 21 days. And it says the prince of Persia stopped this angel from reaching him. Okay, so do you think who's more powerful, this angel or the prince of Persia? Well, eventually, Michael, the archangel again, he pops up a second time in our discussion. He intervenes and boom, it's done. Instantly, this other angel is released to come talk to Daniel. Now, who that angel was, there's debate about that. But the point is, is the entire 21 days, this was firmly in God's control. God was not outpowered by this demon, this so-called prince of Persia. And it's talking about a demon there, not a real king. Okay, God was not outmaneuvered by Satan. God in his sovereignty allowed the answer to take 21 days. And he allowed Daniel to persevere for 21 days. And the result then was he said that Daniel had been found righteous when that angel came to him. Is that not awesome? Sometimes God will allow you to feel the heat of battle for a long time because he's developing your character. So I'm begging you guys, persevere. Be self-disciplined so that you don't bail on the race. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9. Be ready for your comfort zones to be destroyed. Okay. 2 Timothy 3, 2, 3 through 4. Endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. <laughs> okay. Talking about being soldiers in the fight. Paul says, endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. If your perspective in the battle is, I'm going to take ground for Christ. I don't care if I'm the most slandered person on campus. I don't care if I'm tired. I don't care if I don't get enough sleep. I want to get those things, right? But at the same time, my passion is I want to please Jesus. That is going to give you perseverance in the spiritual battle. So persevere. Winston Churchill put it this way. Never give in. Never, never Never, never, in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. I'm reminded of Brandon leading his Bible study with you, Josh, right? Six weeks in and nobody's coming, you know? Well, you're not going to give in. I'm standing my ground. I'm going to fight this battle. I'm going to take the battle straight to Satan. I'm not giving in. I'm going to persevere. That's what God wants to work in us. Oh, okay. Guys. As you persevere, I want to encourage you, don't, don't join the attack, <laughs> okay? Sometimes Christians get sick of the battle and they start attacking other Christians. Um, so persevere and don't join the attack, right? Okay, in conclusion, the battle is the Lord's. This year is going to be great. Psalm 27, 127.1 says, <laughs> Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. We can work as hard as we want, and we can be as circumspect as we possibly could be. 
about attacks on campus. But this is in his hands, not ours. We just need to simply walk with him, guys, every single day, right? Your quiet times are so vital. If you're going to stand your ground, if you're going to be in fellowship with God and others, if you're going to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're going to be self-controlled and alert, if you're going to be resisting Satan, putting on the full armor of God, winning the battle by going on the offensive in prayer and evangelism, if you're not going to give the devil a foothold once you're winning, if that's going to happen, you need to be spending time with him every single day and walking in the power of his spirit. I want to encourage you, fight the battle by praising God. Remember Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20? Ammon and Moab are coming against him, outnumbering him. I don't know how many to one. He goes, I have a good idea. Let, let's go out and, and sing. And God delivers him and destroys his enemy as he praised God. If your attitude this semester is, I am, I am here to make him known. And praise literally doesn't mean singing. It means declaring his character and acts. You could do that with believers. You could do that with unbelievers. If your perspective is, I am going to declare God and who he is and what he does across this campus to anyone that will listen, believer or unbeliever, you're going to win the battle, point blank. That's all there is to it. You're going to win the battle. Straight, Stay strong with a perspective of joy, guys, because the whole battle is designed to rob you of your joy. And I want to encourage you to stay strong with a perspective of joy. In Nehemiah 8.10, we're talking about, we talked about Nehemiah, how they fought and worked at the same time, kind of like us on campus. And what does he say? Remember this? He says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So um, rejoice in the Lord. That's actually a command in Philippians 3 and Philippians 4 and other places that we should rejoice in the Lord. So if God commands you to do something, you can do that. He doesn't command you to the impossible. So when you feel discouraged in battle, rejoice in him and let his joy be your strength, okay? Remember all he's done for you and who he is and what he's given you. Remember Paul and Silas in Philippi, singing in jail, praising God, rejoicing in him, and God saved them. Guys, scripture tells us in 1 Samuel 17 that the battle belongs to the Lord. And it tells us in Hosea 1.7 that he will save you in battle. Right? And finally, check this out. Romans 8.37 says, In all these things... And it's talking about accusation, condemnation, separation from God, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, persecution, and sword, a whole lot. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay? So as you walk in, in his power this semester, you'll be more than conquerors through him who strengthens you. Ah, okay, what do you guys think? That was long. I'm glad you stuck with it. But anyway... We're going to fight this battle this semester, and I think we can win it in his power, right? So you going to be ready? Yeah. Okay. No, we can. Okay. Jesus, thank you so much for this time to talk and to get in your word together. And uh, God, just prepare us for anything that Satan might throw against us this year. God, do your will. Change us. Make us more like you. Protect our minds and our hearts, God. Protect our purpose and our vision. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.